Hello everyone and welcome to another Scots We Hate podcast and today I'm talking with writer Claire McCleary. Hello Claire. Hello Alistair. And Claire is the author of three um, crime novels, Cross Purpose, Burnout and the most recent Runaway which is just out on Saraband or Contraband isn't it is the label? Yes, the Contraband is the imprint of Saraband. And these novels have introduced us to the characters Maggie Laird and Wilma Harkis. And I think a good place to start would be to talk about those characters, about Maggie and Wilma. How did you come up with those? Well, when I set out to write a crime series, I did extensive reading. And not just uh, Tartan Noir Scottish crime, but uh, Scandi Noir, read some French, some Italian. And it did seem to me that uh, crime novels were populated by... Uh, either tortured male detectives uh, who tended to be loners with either a drink problem or a messy divorce (laughs) or relationship problems. And the the women in the crime novels that I read seemed to be either dead prostitutes or they tended to be very ballsy policewomen or very highly skilled um, pathologists or forensic scientists. So I took it back to basics and I thought... What if someone were to write a crime novel in which nobody was qualified in anything? Yeah. Uh, And also that maybe even the crime didn't happen. So when I started thinking about that, I thought, well, it's got to be women. And because I didn't know anything about police procedure or forensics, it's got to be a PI novel. Yeah. So it needs to be a private investigator. And would this woman actually do this on her own? Probably not. Mm-hmm. She would need to have either a, a secretary or a, a sidekick. And so I, I decided I would make these two women, not sisters or friends, but I would make them neighbours and I would make them come together by happenstance. Yes. So Maggie is living in suburban Manifield, mm-hmm. uh, which is a very middle-of-the-road Aberdeen suburb and set in Aberdeen for various reasons and Wilma uh, descends on her newly divorced as the next door neighbour and she's not somebody Maggie would ever want to socialise with (laughs) so I've got these two very different characters. I think that's so interesting because it's exactly what struck me I only really started getting into reading crime fiction a Oh, gosh, in the last five or six years. And it was partly um, down to contraband because they had um, uh, Graham McCray Burnett's uh, novels came out and there was also one by Graham Laroni, which um, uh, came out. And they were just so interesting, so varied. And I thought, well, I'm missing out here if I'm purely not listening or not reading crime because my perception was exactly what you said. It was um, male loners... Um, going right back to Sherlock Holmes, I suppose, who had some kind of problem, they were all damaged in some way, and they almost that defined who they are. And when I first read your books, I thought, this is brilliant, because this is... Um, these women don't shun their responsibilities. They have families, they have partners, they have um, lives that they take very seriously, but yet they also take this undertaking of being private eyes very seriously as well. What um, is their a desire to do this job, to take on the, this job? Why did they decide to do that? Well, they, they both have very different reasons. In Maggie's case, it was prompted by the untimely death of her husband, George, who had been a 
if a, a police sergeant who had retired in disgrace. Yes. So it's really this burning desire for justice in her part. And Wilma, the next door neighbour, is she's good hearted, so she wants to help this distressed, newly widowed neighbour of hers. But also Wilma, who's come from the wrong side of the tracks, yeah. has got this urge to better herself. Yeah. So they've got very different reasons for going into business. Maggie to keep a roof over her head. Wilma, on the one hand, to support Maggie, but on the other hand, to really sort of climb up the social ladder. It just strikes me, when you when you first um, took the book, did you take it to Saraband Street? Was that the first people who were interested? Or? No, I, I didn't. I actually sent it to two publishers and they both made me offers Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I had sent it to one agent uh, who a London agent who said he couldn't take me on he was too stretched but he said there's something good there so stick with it great Um, so the response was positive yes because that's interesting because again it's probably my prejudice I always thought that maybe the area of crime fiction, or as you said, tartan noir in particular, was quite a conservative one. I know better now. There's actually a lot of different voices and a lot of different things out there. Um, and I, was that what you were expecting? Um, well, I think it was two things. I think because I had a background in business, I approached it like a business project. Right. And uh, so I think the positive response was because the book was so different to what was out there. Yes. Uh and so that's an interesting idea. That if you approach it like a, a, a business prospect, do you look at what else is out there and say, right, where's the gap? Yes. How can I fill that? Yes. Uh, so that was why I made my characters uh, women of a certain age. So they're not uh, in Scandinavian. You tend to get a lot of you know very good-looking thirty-something women. Uh, so I wanted these women to be not especially good-looking. You know, mm-hmm. Wilma's got this yo-yoing weight problem, Maggie's got this small eye, and so they're not particularly good-looking. They're in their early 40s. Uh, Maggie's w- newly widowed, so she's mm-hmm. on her own trying to juggle yeah. family. Uh, Wilma's divorced, and she's got this background and these two kind of useless loons, these two boys hovering in the background. So, yes, I think they are different from the protagonists. I mean, it's been, the books have been compared a bit to Happy Valley, the series on yes, television. Yes, yes, Where, again, you have middle-aged women and one with a drink problem, the sister's a, an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- these are women that I wanted to be relatable. I wanted to have protagonists that every woman in the world would easily be able to relate to. Yeah, I think everyone in the world could uh, probably relate to this. And also that every man in the world would want to, would feel protective towards. Yeah, yeah. I think the, the reaction of others to them, and in the books that is, is very interesting because they make that a strength. Um, but it's also difficult. I, I think particularly, um, you know, Maggie's now got a, a, a young family, I think, teen, yes. uh, teens. And obviously they've recently lost their father as well. So there's the, the fallout from that and she's having to deal with all of that. 
But and then they're also because of the line of work they're in, dealing with the police. Yes. And often um, people who knew her husband and um, I guess all the reaction, the world's against them. Put it that way for all sorts of different reasons. You know, either they're patronised or they're dismissed or um, or almost laughed at. You know. Uh, but they use that as, the, as a strength. Yes, and I think that's very true of women generally. I think although on the face of it there have been step changes in women's lives, when it boils down to it, not a lot has changed. Women at home with young children are still very isolated and they suffer uh, a loss of confidence. And these women, if you like, echo that. And also women are still patronised in business. Mm -hmm. And so I really wanted that to come through. And and women too, women are so used to multitasking in their daily lives. Yes. Uh, They have to juggle jobs, sometimes two or three jobs, um, to keep a roof over their heads. They carry this permanent guilt you know, if it's not guilt, they're neglecting the husband or they're neglecting the kids or they're neglecting the elderly parents. And also they're almost always permanently tired, you yeah. know. Uh, so this is Maggie and Wilma. Yeah. Maggie and Wilma cope with this. And, of course, when they go into business, they make all these really crass mistakes. They put their foot in it. They get involved in things they shouldn't. And uh, so I wanted it to be to reflect women's daily lives. I think, because it, it's not, in some ways it's not about the solving of the crimes at all. Uh, in fact, sometimes the crimes aren't even particularly crimes, you know. Yes, they, sure. they, they, they often take on um, things that the police just haven't either the time for or just almost dismiss right away. They're almost the last stop for some people. Yes. Um, but what the real, where the real drama is, as you suggest, is in their everyday lives, is how they manage to do um, juggle everything else keep people happy or at least try and keep people happy and yet still keep this business because it is a business um, going and it's stressful not just for them together but also to for each other as well yes so I, I really wanted to give a voice to the millions of ordinary women yeah. the women who maybe haven't had the opportunity to uh, benefit from further education or proper careers career jobs and also really wanted to show how strong and resilient these women are. So in Maggie and Wilma, we have two very ordinary women doing extraordinary things. What I I love about the the relationship, because it does strain at times, and I think particularly by the time we get to Runaway, it's kind of gone through, you know, the, the meeting, the bonding, and then almost kind of starting to to wind each other up because they would, they don't agree about where things are going. But it's almost like um, if you have a family relationship, whether it's brothers and sisters or whatever, you can bicker, you can argue, but when someone turns against you, then both of you, you get together. Ranks, you close yes. ranks and you push back. Um, so I, I think it's so important that characters not only hook you from day one... Um, but that they continue to grow and develop. Absolutely. So I think we're going to see a lot more of Maggie, who at the beginning, I think, was uh, 
not as colourful as Wilma. Yes, Big yes. Wilma, she's become known. I've had people come up to me at book festival and say, we love Big Wilma. I've had men say, I'm worried about Brian. So people, <laughs> people have obviously got involved yeah. with these characters. But I think what is going to happen is that Maggie is really going to blossom. Yeah. And Wilma is going to calm down a bit. I think my biggest problem has been reining Wilma in because there's this, <laughs> there's this huge temptation to let, let her have her head. You yeah, know? Yeah. But then I don't want Maggie to become insipid. Yeah. That she is petite, she is physically the smaller of the two um, and she has this background as a legal secretary so she has a bit of, she has facility with language and you know, and so on. But uh she is slightly, she has a slightly narrower background, bit of a snob, bit judgmental. But I want her really to come out of her shell and begin to really take risks. I think that's very interesting because when you have a double act and you are with them over a period of time, often one starts to overshadow the other, you know, Holmes and Watson or, or whatever. And uh, in this case, no, they absolutely are... Um, they, they come with different skills and different identities, uh, uh, but they do work together. Um, and what I think interesting about Runaway is you're starting to see that strain ever so. So it'd be interesting to see, you know, how that uh, develops. Um, the books are set in Aberdeen, um, which is a city I know pretty well. And you were mentioning um, Scandi Noir there. It's almost the perfect, if you're going to set a Scottish Scandi Noir thriller Aberdeen's almost the place to do it because of you know, geography and all sorts of other things why did you send set them in Aberdeen? Well again that was a pr- for pragmatic reasons that was my business head because again there seemed to be a concentration of uh, Scottish crime in the central yeah, belt Yeah absolutely and just, yeah. then when I looked out with the central belt St Andrews where I was living was too small to have the mortuary that I really wanted and I didn't know my Dundee well enough. And I'd lived in Aberdeen for 30 years. Both my children had been born there. I'd been an antique dealer there. So I knew the hinterland as well as the city. So, and also for me, Aberdeen has everything. Yes, it does. And it has these wonderful graphic contrasts, not just in the granite, you know, the silver yeah. city, the sparkling mica in the granite, but the base rock underneath. Uh, but also it's got, like any city, it's got an underbelly. Yeah. It's got an ancient university, it's got a violent history, it sits right on the North Sea, which is savage in itself. Yeah. It's a it, dramatic city, yeah. Yes. So. Um, and yeah, I didn't realise, you know, you'd lived there so long because you can tell that this is someone with an absolute knowledge of the place. Um, again, you've got Mark said, well, where's the gap? And I think for any writers listening, that's fascinating in itself because I think often people go, oh, I'm going to write a book I like, let's say, Ian Banks, and I'm going to write a book like Ian Banks, whereas what you seem to have done is gone, right, I'm going to research crime fiction, not just Scottish crime fiction, but, you know, um, a lot of other stuff as well, and look for where that uh, I can I can fit in, where it's it's not the same, where it's actually different to what else is going on. Um, but did you also take into account what you'd learn from reading other people? Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, I mean, I learned 
practical things that I learned things not to do. Um, one of the interesting things when you're talking about Scandinoir and we're talking about um, crime novels generally uh, is uh, for somebody starting out, um, th there, there are trends in crime as in yeah. everything else. And there seems to be, a, there had been a strong trend when I started writing to go back to rather more gentle crime. Not right. quite Miss Marple, but of that ilk. Okay. And there seems to be a trend at the moment for back to the set piece yeah. sort of crime where you've got a big group of people in the country house or whatever. Yes, yes. Um, but as with all trends, because bringing about publication is a slow process, you know, trends are often over by the time you get there. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I was aware of that. The other thing that is critical is that when you submit to an agent or a publisher, um, one of the critical things they're looking at is where is this book going to sit on the shelf? Yes. So how are they going to compartmentalise it, if you like, categorise it? And one of the first things an editor said to me was, um, a crime novel can't be PI and police procedural, to which my answer was, why not? Yeah. And obviously this editor was thinking about where does it sit on the shelf. Um, but again, there is now a loosening of genres. I think that's right. So that, so that novels can be cross-genre. And I think there's a nod back to more experimental work, like, you know, not non-crime, maybe The Milkman with, yeah. with um, told and related in more experimental ways. I think that's right. And I think that's what started to attract me to, to modern um, Scottish crime fiction was you could still get your classically written, um, you know, central belt male protagonist if you wanted, but there was a lot of other voices coming yes. out there. And um, it's interesting someone saying to you, but where will it sit on the shelf? Or you can't have this and the other. Um, because I wonder if as the shelves became less and less, as the bookshops became less and less, maybe that became not as important and people were just willing to take a risk on something that was different. Yes. Because these are very different, I think, the three books. I, I think really I'm not hidebound by convention because I've come at it from a different angle, yes. if you like. And also maybe because I'm an older woman and I've had, um, as Kirsty Gunn, my professor, he said, uh, when I did my master's in creative writing, she said, she describes me as somebody who's had a full life. <laughs> I, I do sometimes think, maybe Kirsty thinks my life has been fuller than it has been, but, uh, you know, <laughs> I, have, I have done lots of very different jobs, from yeah. laundry maid to market trader, you know, to training consultant. I have travelled widely and I have read widely. So I think that all, and I've been in business, I think all that informs your writing. So, um, why did you decide that you were going to start writing? Well, I've always written. I read right. English. I've always written, even if it was training manuals or right. advertising yeah, yeah, sure, copy. Yeah. So, uh, I've always written and I've always had short stories published. But I went into business and it grew like Topsy and I ended up being in business for 30 years. And it was only when my children in senior school that I went back to an evening class right? and it just went from there okay. and I had the window of opportunity went back and did my masters 
and then decided that the crime novel was the way to start as a route to being published because crime sells, because crime features large, crime and memoir were then featuring large in the bestseller lists. Um, so it was almost a, a, using this term again, a business proposal where you thought my starter is going to be entry level at crime and let's see if after that's taken off you've always got a plan to do something Yes, and last year having written three crime novels, the the first three in in the series and had them published um, I did actually then develop another totally different novel uh, which I've yet to submit to publishers That's interesting um, but it doesn't mean the end for... No, no, no indeed. I started the fourth in the Harkins and Laird series oh, and good. it's going to be, again, very different because I've tried to tackle, although these are middle-aged women, it's not cosy crime. No, no, so no there it's are, not. There are, in fact, I think the first novel my publisher gave to one of her other writers and she back came back and said... And I wouldn't mention his name, was shocked. Uh, <laughs> and, and I have to say, a number of my friends have said, how do you know all that stuff? Or where did you get that from? Uh, and, and that's the fun of being a crime writer, because people are very keen to help. You, know? yes, you, can bring, yeah. you can bring somebody up out of the blue and say, I'm a crime writer, could you give me an answer to this? And People are just enormously supportive. Yeah. Uh, I'm interested then in how um, friends and family did react to... I mean, you say you've been writing all your life, so that wouldn't have been a surprise, but maybe writing some quite dark places and you you go in these books. What was the reaction? Uh, I think my friends, I think my social circle... I think we're probably fairly appalled. All the effing and seeing. And I think um, at my launch, uh, a blogger who I will also remain nameless uh, said, tweeted, who would believe that a woman who looked like this, such things could come out of her mouth? Uh, And my daughter said to me, are you all right reading this stuff out, Mum? <laughs> so, yes, I mean, people were pretty, I think, pretty shocked with the first book because it was quite dark. Yeah, and I'm a little bit surprised that folk who knew crime writers were surprised because I've always found that um, the crime writers I know who can write some very violent, dark stuff are the nicest people you'll ever meet. <laughs> <laughs> they really are. Um I've obviously got a very dark mind, I think. Yeah, well, I think many of them have dark minds, but in terms of um, when you get to meet them, you know, you never feel threatened, put it that way. Um, But let's talk a little bit about the themes, because um, when the the crimes are first mooted, when people first come to uh, Maggie and Wilma, they're often domestic in tone. They're often, as I said, they're ones that maybe the police aren't going to take seriously. Runaway, for instance, is a missing person. And I think most people think, well, it's just someone who's left. You don't worry about it too much. But it then it takes you into areas of homelessness and people trafficking at, yes. at one point. Yes. Um, how, I'm always fascinated by the research and crime books in particular. So how do you go about kind of making it so believable? Because it's incredibly believable. Well, I think... 
first of all, I'm put on the spot by my publisher because every <laughs> November she goes to a meeting with the salespeople and she'll email me and say, give me, give me an idea of your themes for the next three books. And I have a kind of nervous breakdown. <laughs> and so then I just kind of wing it and I said, uh, the runaway book, when I looked up what I'd said to my publisher, I said it was going to be about lap dancing. I don't know a thing about lap dancing. So <laughs> so then I thought, well, oh, come on, you need to come up with something else. And I thought, we'll have a missing child. Mm-hmm. And then I thought, no, no, that's been done to death. It's much more of a story if the mother goes missing and yeah. abandons the child. Because a woman would abandon a man with all, you know, respect to you, Alistair, and, and the, the men in society. But what woman would abandon yeah. young children? So that just was more of a story and Runaway came from that. Yeah. And in the first book, Cross Purpose, I just, uh, it really dealt with the lack of affordable childcare. Mm-hmm. And then that also crossed with the ease of access of even very small children to drugs these days. Yeah, yeah. And so that was really about what they call cuckooing, where drug dealers will take over some vulnerable person's flat as a base to do their dealing. Yeah. And the second book burned out was about domestic abuse, which, of course, was very big with the Me Too movement. But I didn't really want to write about this sort of domestic abuse where the woman gets beaten up I wanted to write about something much more subtle, yeah. which was the white-collar control and consent yes. sort of thing, which actually then was published just about the time of the Me Too movement. And it does seem to me that, you, you again, I think it's looking for, well, what's been done to death and what maybe hasn't been done before, and steering, with, you know, there's lots of missing persons, there's lots of abuse cases, there's lots of drug cases... There's been recently quite a lot of people trafficking um, uh, themes, but you do seem to take them in a different way. And talking to you now, it seems to me that that's part of your writing process is like, right, how can I do this but do it differently? Yeah, I, th- I think maybe I'm just at heart unconventional, a bit subversive, you know. I, I just never want to go the path that other people go. Yeah. I want to do something a bit quirkier. And I think with The Runaway... I think as the book developed, there was this missing person and this Debbie is the domestic goddess. And I thought she actually became a bit of a pain. Uh, <laughs> but she goes missing. But then that translates into how important home is to us all. Yes. No matter how modest. Do you know, it's our shelter from the elements and, and from subversive forces and I think that is encapsulated in this runaway in this trafficked girl um, who is not only plucked from her home but will never see will never again have a home yes and and I think we just don't I think we take for take home the notion of home for granted. No, I think that that's right. Um, the, the the kind of safetyness, uh, the safetyness, the safety and the protection that it should give, uh-huh. and when it doesn't, when that's you know subverted or when that breaks down, yes. then that can be uh, you know as, as shocking as anything. And and how easy it is for that to be lost because when we see people sleeping in the streets, I mean, we we assume that they have a. a, a 
an addiction yeah. to drink on drugs. And and it is true that very high proportion of them do. But it is amazing how easy it is to lose one's home through illness or divorce. And then you lose the roof over your head and you lose everything because once you don't have an address... Well, so I think that's in, in, increasingly the case. And I think uh, in all the themes that you touch on in Runaway, it is, it's not the old and tired stereotypes. It's absolutely the up-to-date... Um, you know, I mean, the idea that there's people trafficking in Scotland, maybe 10 years ago, people might go, oh, that would never happen here. And now people go, well, you know what? It could be happening anywhere. Yes. Um, the idea of someone being living on the streets who actually still has a job, but yes. lives on the streets. Yes. 10 years ago, folk would say, well, I, I, that would never happen. But now, unfortunately, it's all too believable. Um, and you said before we started recording that uh, you're kind of writing almost all the time at the moment. Yes. Um, and it's, so is, I think that, is that a reason why it seems so fresh? Because, you know, it's not like you're going back to a, a drawer full of old ideas and saying, oh, I can maybe update that one. It's brand new all the time. Yes, well, I think it's just that because I'm writing 100,000 words is a slog. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I probably start at around 100,000 and then it, my editor prunes it. Uh, <laughs> the taste on your face. And, uh, no, 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 he's usually right. Yes. Um, and, uh, you know, you do just chip away, but I find that I write best in great creative bursts where I'm kind of living it and I wake at five in the morning with the dialogue running through mm. my head. So it is absolutely immediate yeah. to me. Yeah, and, cause I, and I presume affected by what you read in the newspaper or what you see in the television or what you even see on the streets, I guess. Yeah, I, I have really rather a sad life because I think I'm the only person... I mean, I ration my television viewing and it's almost always crime. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, I'm probably the only person who watches crime on television and takes notes. <laughs> I bet you're not, but, uh, yeah, I can... And you said as well that before you started... Um, writing these novels, you hadn't really read a lot of crimes. No, I... Uh, I mean, at school at university, obviously, I was reading literature, yeah, inverted sure, commas. Sure. And then I probably had read... I'd read a, a bit of Agatha Christie. Um, you know, I'd read a bit of Conan Doyle. I probably read Anine Rankin and Val McDermott. Uh, but I hadn't. I didn't really read crime by choice. And yeah. then when I did my masters, I acquired a taste for American literary fiction. I mean, mostly by women writers. Yeah. Read a lot of that. So I read. I think fairly not, not highbrow stuff per se, but I didn't really read genre fiction. Yeah. Um, and now what I do is I read crime at night. But in the morning, I tried to read a short story, a wonderful short story, to make me write better. <laughs> because I, I have this, I have this thing that just because it's crime writing, mm. it shouldn't be dumbed down. No, but I, I, should, absolutely not. You should still challenge the reader, mm -hmm. and for that reason too, I don't go into a huge amount of detail about the appearance of my protagonist. No, I want the reader to imagine them for themselves and make them real to them 
You said that uh, the character of Debbie becomes a pain in the uh-huh. last book, and I do feel that you get into the heads of each and every one of your characters. Another one that springs to mind is Maggie's teenage daughter yes. as well, which you yes. really get her, you know, the fact that she loves her mum, but she's also frustrated, and, you know, this, this kind of um, tension that, that's there. And um, so do you feel that you, you really live with these characters when you're writing? Oh, yes, and, 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 and people obviously take them on board because people come up to me and say, these kids need a, need a slap. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I had them behaving badly after the, as a reaction to the father. Yeah, of course, that's completely understandable. Uh, but I have them now just being kids, Yeah, you know, just being teenagers, giving their mother a hard time. Not setting out to do it, but just being self-absorbed mm-hmm. as kids are. Yeah, I, I like that idea of not setting out because it it does make it feel like these are characters who are developing for you as you write them, as well yeah. as they develop for us when we read them on the page, and that gives them a, a really believable kind of sense. I think. Yeah, similar. Um, so what? Uh, if you're going to be doing your uh, the next one, and as I said, there are tensions between Maggie and Wilma, can you say anything about what happens next, or do you want to keep that completely...? Well, I think... I mean, one of the wonderful things is when you write a series and when you write characters like this, uh, there's huge scope. Yeah. You know, there's, there's a huge scope to play with. And I do have a lot of fun. Yeah. So... I think I'm going to have a bit of sport with Maggie's love life because <laughs> she's been she's been knocking uh, these uh, people's advances back. Yes. And I think now is the time for Maggie. She's been courted, but she's yes, managed to keep yes. it. Yeah. So I think there's this, and obviously also the whole Gold Ruth question, the baddie in the background. Mm-hmm. I think we've got to see more of him again. And were these all, was it always going to be, now obviously it depends on how the first book does, but in your eyes, was it always going to be a series of books? Yes. Yeah. I, I set out to write it as a series. Whether that was a clever thing to do or not, I don't know, because of course it does tie you in. Yes. If you are successful, it ties you in sure. to doing a book a year or whatever. Mm-hmm. But I do think there's still a lot of scope for these two women. No, oh, absolutely. Absolutely. I remember um, at the end of... Uh, cross purpose. I think it already said uh, Maggie and Wilma will be back, yes. and I thought well, this is this is a brave and ambitious thing to state. Uh, they, they're coming back. You know, yes. you've not seen the last of them. Um, which brings us on to uh, working with your publisher. I mean, how is that relationship? It's well, I, I, I'm happy to say it's wonderful. Um, Sarah Hunt of Saraband is very savage, a very experienced yes, publisher. Absolutely. Um, she's very perceptive, she's very thoughtful because it's quite difficult as an older woman uh, to be the brownie again. And of course, this happens throughout one's life. You know, yeah. when you get to uh, top of pr- primary school and then you're the kid again at senior school and so on. This just happens in cycles. So here I am now as the older woman, you know, kicking out as a novelist. Yeah. And you, there are a million questions you want to ask, but you don't want to be seen as the one that's the pest, you know? <laughs> and so you are aware that your publisher has maybe 30 other authors mm-hmm. or whatever. Yeah. So you don't want to be a nuisance. On the other hand, there are all sorts of basic things that you don't know. Of course. Like what happens about the cover, like how long do things take, like what must you do? 
uh, in terms of your social media presence, mm -hmm. for example, uh, like what things to avoid, like when not to open your mouth <laughs> about something. Um, and there's somebody who's very straight from the shoulder. I mean, my biggest problem is not speaking my mind sometimes. So no, Sarah has been hugely supportive. Um, my editor, Russell McLean, who's also a crime writer, yes, I've read um, was uh, on board with Maggie and Wilma from the start. Yeah, he was yeah. one of the first readers. So that is a huge um, advantage for me too. And no, I can say that um, I have a very good relationship with Sarah. I admire her tremendously. And I just keep my fingers crossed that the relationship will continue because yeah. I'm very aware that as easily as a publisher can, you know, give you a contract for two or more um, novels, you know, just as easily they can decide you've run out of steam. Yeah. So I do work hard. Yeah. And uh, Sarah has said that she feels that I'm very professional. I try to be. And I just keep my fingers crossed that it keeps going. Um, how long ago was it? Did your masters? Did you say it was? It was two thousand and eleven. I just I, I do wonder because the things that you mentioned there that um, uh, your publisher might be saying, you know, how do you use social media? Am I involved with the cover? Um, how long do things take? Because it'll be different now than it was. I would just I take it these were never touched upon in masters in terms of the, the practicality of being a writer is slightly different. I mean, people talk about, you know, sitting in front of a blank page or a blank screen, as it yes. might be now, and getting your thoughts done. But there's all this other stuff that you have to kind of yes. deal with. I think at Dundee, yeah, it was mostly concentrated on the actual sure. writing. And my writing is reckoned to be very strong on the domestic. Yeah. And also that... It's been said in my writing that I leave a lot unsaid, that I can create atmosphere, and also that my people find my dialogue particularly credible. Yes. Uh, although at the same time, you know, any crime editor will say that too much dialogue slows up the action. So the, there were at Dundee a number of literary salons which were very useful in meeting published authors and also meeting agents yeah, and so yeah. on but I think nobody really tells you that it'll take five years to get your first novel published or that uh, you know things like that or whether Twitter's better than Facebook yeah, or yeah. you know all these sorts yes, of no, absolutely. and from that point of view it is wonderful if you have one or two other authors who are with whom you're on sufficiently good terms to meet once in a while and be able to just really compare notes and have a moan, you know? <laughs> yes. So um, that, because writing's such a solitary business. Yeah, and I think it's something a lot of people, even things like the organising of book launches, where you're good to have it. Um, yes, if, who, Things like we're doing now, I think a lot of people don't consider... Uh, that, and also who pays for what and yeah. what you can expect people to pay for. Because, again... You know, you, you, unless you hit the big time yes, uh, and you become very well established and or uh, you're commissioned for television and or you're uh, shortlisted for the Booker's Green McCraber Nables with uh, Bloody Project, uh, unless you're that, you're really not going to make a living 
as an author. Yeah, um, yeah that's So right. you have to be prepared for a lot of chipping away uh, and not too many sweeties. <laughs> well, I think, I mean, having you know done uh, many of these podcasts now with different writers, yeah, I could probably count on one hand the ones who make a living just from being a writer. There's mm. lots of other strings to their, to their bow. Um, you mentioned dialogue there, and I did want to talk to you about that because your dialogue is so believable. It just sounds right on the page, if that's the correct thing to say. Um, how do you do? You are you a good listener? Are you? It seems to me yes. you probably are. I think I'm. I think I'm very observant. I think probably most writers are. Yeah. I think they're not so much nosy as curious, interested. Yes. You know, and I listen to people on trains and planes and I watch people in restaurants and mm. I'm just very observant. And I find that particularly with the police procedural element that I'm writing, that if you have a number of phrases that really ring true, that that really helps the veracity of the whole thing. And I feel with the dialogue between these two women or between Maggie and the daughter or Wilma and her Tory loons. Yeah. I mean, I just really imagine I'm in that situation or back being an antique dealer out in the country somewhere uh, with somebody speaking Doric. Yes. And uh, I really just try to tell it as, as it is, yeah. as I've experienced it. And um, now that you've uh, had three of these published... Um, how has the reaction been from people? I mean, in, in from the readers, have, have there been a lot of positive reaction? Yes, I think, I mean, I've been very lucky that I've had some very good reviews, um, yourself included, Alistair, and uh, people have broadly complimented me on the characterisation, yeah. on the dialogue, uh, and really on the fact that the books are different from what's out there. And so, yes, I think people often say, we love Big Wilm or Maggie Street is a die, or, you know, they like the fact that Maggie is totally law-abiding and Wilm is always looking for the dodgy way to get, to get round stuff. Uh, for me, I think it, it, it's down to their... Um humanity but also they're a they're very recognizable i think we all know as i said at the beginning a maggie or wilma either in our families or in our friends or like that and their uh, lives are relatable where many um crime fiction their lives are perhaps not relatable unless you yourself are a loner with a problem. Um, and that, that's what, what, what strikes me about them. And uh, yeah, I've been recommending them uh, here, there and everywhere because I think they're fantastic. Um, I think that is the best place to leave it. So Claire, thank you very much for talking to me today. And thank you, Alistair, for hosting me on your podcast. And we'll be back soon uh, with someone completely different. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>